and now to that I add, I don't know when I've seen a church so blessed with good cooks. <laughs> very, very good food. Thanks so much. I want to talk just a moment about that picture that uh, is so appropriately displayed up front here. Uh, Nathan Green has the capacity for putting into a picture things we have longed to see but couldn't quite formulate. We, we would had the ideas in our mind, but this is such a beautiful portrayal of the second coming, and there's a story that goes with this. The Southern California Conference, at least the last I knew, would put that picture on their tithe envelopes. And Joellen, who loves this picture, carries some of those tithe envelopes with her, so before she studies her Sabbath school lesson, she takes out that and looks at the picture. And she will, from time to time, share it with people. I know she shared it with one lady who uh, was waiting in the airport along with Joellen back east to come to California. Her husband had by, been diagnosed with something Joellen instantly recognized, being a physician, was quite serious, and so she said, I'd like to share a picture with you. Well, of course, with that picture came the address of the Southern California Conference Office, so it was obviously an Adventist thing and would enable a lady to follow up if she uh, was inclined to do so. This picture was also on a little... Um, I don't know whether it was one of Dan's postcards or whether it was a tithe envelope, but Joellen and a lady friend back east were at a uh, Lowe's uh, household supply store shopping for things to put on the Hiram Edson farm, which the church now owns again. That's the farm where the morning of the disappointment at Hiram Edson started across the field and suddenly stopped and said, now I think I'm beginning to see something here, something's going on in heaven, and from that developed our sanctuary doctrine. Well, anyway, they had this picture, and the gentleman who was waiting on them uh, happened to see the picture. I think Joe Ellen's friend shared it with him, and he explained that he was grieving because his son had been, what was it, killed by a drunk driver? And he just looked transfixed at that picture, couldn't take his eyes off of it. And he's a salesman in a commercial store. And finally, Joellen's friend thought, well, this is a little awkward. Maybe we should, you know, invite him to sell us something. And she tried to do that, and he says, no, no, I don't want to talk about that. I want to talk about this picture. And later on, at the Hiram Edson farm, which was some distance from the Lowe's store, uh, there were some supplies needed, very, very minor thing that was needed. They were putting up a beautiful Bible prophecy trail with pictures, 12 pictures showing various aspects of God's plan for dealing with the sin problem from the fall of Lucifer all the way back to this. And the gentleman at Lowe's, when he got word from uh, the people at the Edson farm that a couple little parts were missing, he immediately said, I will come out and assess your situation. He wanted to come out and see these pictures, okay? <laughs> So thank the Lord for that. It's just such a blessing uh, to all of us. We don't all of us have anything like Nathan's capacity to put into graphic, tangible form the dreams we have in our mind as we read Scripture. But there's something we can do. We can create word pictures. And that word picture may be nothing more than what the Lord's done for us, but it's very powerful, very evocative, and it's something we can all of us do. So, in our own way, we should do what we're able to do and, and what Nathan has so blessed us with.
All right. We've talked this weekend about prophecy and how it helps us cope with an otherwise challenging world. We talked this morning about one little aspect of the life of Christ because we need to be reminded if we don't get Jesus in the center of all these end-time truths, they're just information. They aren't saving grace. Now, later this morning, we talked about opportunities and challenges for God's end-time work, and I'd like to close with some word pictures, if you will, of what it'll be like. The last few days on earth, this event, and the first few moments in heaven. And we're able to create those word pictures for the simple reason that we have them painted for us in books like Revelation and Great Controversy. So this afternoon, let's begin with a presupposition. The second coming of Jesus is a rescue mission. That's what it is. Let me read you something from Revelation. Revelation eleven eighteen, And you're going to see how our sanctuary message once again fits into end time events. The nations were angry, and thy wrath is come, and the time of the dead that they should be judged. There's our sanctuary message in the heart of Revelation, obviously in an end-time context. There's your pre-advent judgment. Angry nations, God's reaching the point where heaven's mercy can no longer uh, forestall events in a rebellious world, and that occurs at the time of the dead when they would be judged. Thank God for the clarity of understanding from our pioneers that gave us a unique doctrine, a unique insight into what Jesus is doing for us now. Well, Revelation eleven eighteen moves on that you should reward your servants, the prophets, and those who fear your name, and should destroy those who destroy the earth. Now, last night I mentioned some of the physical dangers this world is facing. We don't know what's in that North Korean satellite. We don't know how long it will be until certain nations in the Middle East go nuclear. And if they do, Saudi Arabia already has purchased the bomb. We talked about that last night. And I want to thank the ladies who provided me with some medication for, uh, yeah, thanks, for some allergies I seem to be reacting to in your, in your lovely uh, environment here. I'm not used to being here. But anyway, uh, they gave me some medication that's helped me a little bit. So anyway, the coming of Jesus is a rescue mission. Now with that in mind, let's go and look into inspired sources and live through the last few moments on earth, the second coming, and the first few moments in heaven. And I begin in Great Controversy, page 635. When the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn from those who honor the law of God, there will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. Two points I want to make here. I don't think Ellen White was ever in a law library. I don't think she would have known how to find one, but she has perfectly described the mechanism whereby God's people will be facing end-time risks. She says, when the protection of human laws shall be withdrawn... What is it that leaves us, you know, at least with the fragile safety we have now? It's that potential bad guys know 
if they do to us what they'd like to do, there's the law back there protecting us and imposing on them incarceration or worse. So we have the protection of human law. All right. Thank you very much. Are you following me? What keeps us safe is the, is the restraining effect of human law saying you do that to innocent people, you will have to meet the wrath of the, of the state. What Ellen White is saying is that the time will come when that protection will be withdrawn. After a certain time, it will no longer be against the law for people to take the law into their own hands and enforce their will against God's people. That's what she's saying, and it makes perfect sense to me as a lawyer. Now, we talked earlier today about globalism. I think Revelation makes it very clear. We're going to have a brief period of globalism just before the coming of Jesus. Here's another example of it. There will be in different lands a simultaneous movement for their destruction. Simultaneous means acting in concert. There's your globalism. Now, the interesting thing is, when does this happen? Well, let's go back to uh, Great Controversy 636. It is at midnight that God manifests his power for the deliverance of his people. And the question I have for you, why does that happen at midnight? Tell me. Test our faith? I'm thinking of it as a lawyer. I'm thinking, what time of day does the new day begin? Midnight, one second past midnight. When is a law effective? One second past midnight. That's why I think it's at midnight that this happens, because the law becomes effective, God's people are no, no longer protected by human law, and it happens in the middle of the night. Now, God's people, apparently desperate danger from which only cosmic intervention can help them, and we go back to page 635 of Great Controversy, the people of God, some in prison cells, some hidden in solitary retreats in the forests and mountains, still plead for divine protection, which tells me everybody doesn't get to the forests and mountains. Some people wind up in prison cells, and what does that do? That gives them the opportunity to witness to everybody there. The apostles went through this. Some people get in prison. But the question is, how do you get there? Well, that's a question that, as a lawyer, I've seen work. So let me tell you how. You're charged with a crime. You're arraigned. You come in. You plead guilty or not guilty. Discovery takes place. The people have to produce the evidence that they think they have against you. There are probably some pretrial hearings. There are motions. There are lots of things that happen. But ultimately, you come down to a day of trial. And as we've seen recently, in any trial where there is a technical subject, like DNA, or like the earning capacity of an injured person over the rest of their lifetime, what the present net value of their earnings would be, you bring in an economist who will opine to that in front of the jury and say this man would have earned this many, many more dollars over his lifetime had he not been injured in this traffic accident. Expert witnesses. Okay, we're together on that. This happens in court. If you were on trial for your religious faith, who would be the most effective expert witness to testify against you? 
Huh? Somebody who had once worshipped with you. Now, with that in mind, let me read you something from Maranatha. As the storm approaches, a large class who have professed faith in the third angel's message, but have not been sanctified through obedience, there's an interesting topic. Join the ranks of the opposition. What is it causes this split? Some people believe God's law has some relevance to our lives, and some people say it's, it's not relevant because it can't be done. Okay? Well, my position is if it's in the Word of God, you can take it to the bank. And Revelation 14, 12 describes a generation of people who keep the commandments. Now, as far as I'm concerned, if the God's Word says it, that's good enough for me. I believe it. Now, it may not be my generation, but somebody will because the word of God predicts it happening. So some people who have not been sanctified through obedience to the truth join the ranks of the opposition by uniting with the world, partaking of its spirit. They've come to view matters in very nearly the same light. So when you see things happening even among God's people that sound a little strange, when they publish plans that sound like something other than an Adventist meeting, remember where you heard it first. They have come to view matters in nearly the same light. Then, it says, men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoiced in the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead souls. What does that tell us? It tells us don't ever look at a person. You can get let down. Don't ever look at a person. Only look at the truth. Men of talent and pleasing address who once rejoiced in the truth employ their powers to deceive and mislead and become the most bitter enemies of their former brethren. When Sabbath keepers are brought before the courts, these apostates are the most efficient agents of Satan to misrepresent and accuse. There's your expert witnesses. I'm bringing this up not to put us on a downer, you know, (laughs) to start looking at each other and saying, well, are you going to be one of them? That's not our role. All I'm saying is if, heaven forbid, this should happen to you, and I hope it doesn't because it would be a very, very discouraging thing to face a former uh, believer across the, the, the side of the courtroom, not on your side, and have them hear these things. But if it happens... Don't get discouraged. Remember where you heard it first. Prophecy has the way of energizing us so we aren't taken by surprise in the future. So it's midnight in a literal sense, and it's midnight in this earth's history when God intervenes. Now let's watch a cosmic rescue begin. Great Controversy 635. It is now in the hour of utmost extremity that God will interpose for the deliverance of his chosen. There's the rescue. And the first view you get of Jesus is not on the cloud. It's on the throne. And you have to read Great Controversy through every once in a while to get reminded of these events that occur in sequence in the second coming. The first time you see Jesus is on the throne. Let me read it to you. In the midst of the angry heavens is one clear space of indescribable glory whence comes the voice of God 
like the sound of many waters, saying, It is done. She says, That voice shakes the heavens and earth. Well, I guess it would. And there's a mighty earthquake, as Revelation puts it, such as was not since men were upon the earth. When the voice of the Creator comes across, propelled on a band of energy, and hits this fragile little world, things start rearranging themselves. We're starting to see a lot of earthquakes in this uh, era. But think about this. While the earth is rearranging its surface, something's also happening in the sky. Page 638. Through a rift in the clouds, there beams a star whose brilliancy is fourfold in contrast with the darkness. Those who have sacrificed all for Christ are now secure. Their faces so lately anxious and haggard are now aglow with wonder, faith, and love, and their voices rise in triumphant song. See, at the end of time, you don't need to succumb to fear. Your neighbor who doesn't know the Lord will have every right to. You don't, because you know how the story ends. You have no right to be afraid. Jesus in Luke 21 said, you'll see it start to happen when it does where you're supposed to look. Look up, your redemption's drawing near. So these people begin to sing. And what do they sing? Well, they sing one of the Psalms of David. You want to guess which one? <laughs> 91 is a, good, is a very good guess. It's the one that you would logically think. But think about what's going on. These people are singing while the earth's surface is rearranging itself in one humongous earthquake. So what do you suppose they sing? Yes. God is, very, is our refuge and strength, a very present help in time of trouble. Therefore shall not we fear, though the earth be removed and the mountains cast into the sea. Now my point here is it doesn't hurt to start memorizing scripture, does it? You at least ought to memorize the 46th Psalm because you'll have to sing it. Okay. Nothing wrong with memorizing scripture. I've often told a story about the Adventist pastor up in Bakersfield who was a patient of Joellen's dad, and he and his wife were just immersed in scripture. They would prop their Bibles up at the breakfast table and read. Now, I'm not sure I would go that far. It's kind of nice for a husband and wife to talk once in a while, but they, they were just memorizing scripture, and one day that pastor, that Adventist pastor, came into Dr. Barnard's office on a Sunday. He always opened his office on Sunday for convenience of his patients, and in anticipation of putting a sign on his door saying, we're sorry for the inconvenience, but we're closed in response to the Sunday law. That would have made a point. Well, the Adventist pastor comes in, and out of one of the exam rooms comes a non-Adventist pastor, somewhat antagonistic to our view of the gospel. The doctor wanted to introduce the two, uh, thinking it would be nice to have these colleagues in the clergy at least shake hands. The other gentleman lit into our pastor. He didn't waste any time. He says, the trouble with you Advents is you don't understand the book of Galatians. Whereupon the Adventist pastor replied, Brother, you may be right. Help me out here. Tell me when I reach the part of Galatians I don't understand. Paul, an apostle, not of man, neither by man, but of God the Father and Jesus Christ. And he starts reciting Galatians from memory. 
whereupon the other gentleman discovered an appointment he was late for. <laughs> never hurts to have the Bible a part of your life. You never know when you're going to need to speak with something better than just what you think. If you're able to cite authoritatively a cite scripture, uh, so much good can be done. Well, anyway, while these words of holy trust ascend to God, the clouds sweep back, the starry heavens are seen, the glory of the celestial city streams from the gates ajar, and there appears against the sky a hand. All this stuff is happening just before the second coming. You've got to go through great controversy once in a while to brush up on the sequence of events. It's kind of nice to know in advance, yeah, that's happening. I remember where I saw it first, and it's right on schedule. So the hand is holding something. Now, what do you suppose that hand in the sky is holding? Uh-huh. Yeah, the law of God. Reminding the world there is still a law that holds this universe together, and there's a law that holds human behavior within acceptable standards. One little part of which is that this mighty creator at the end of creation week, looking back on something enormously satisfying to him, says, I want to memorialize this. Because there will come a time when people will want to think they're here by accident. And if every week they are in my presence being reminded of intelligent design, it's going to be real hard for that mistake to occur. If the Christian world had every week been meeting on a memorial of creation, how far do you think Charles Darwin would have gotten here? By the way, you know what year Darwin wrote his first draft of On the Origin of Species? 1844. First draft. Wasn't published then, that was his first draft. First draft of the Communist Manifesto was written by Karl Marx in 1844. However confused we may get, however intellectually mature we may have become, so we decide it's time to get rid of some of this baggage from the past and rejoin the theological mainstream. However much we may want to embarrass ourselves with 1844, it's real clear to me Lucifer had no, no uh, misgivings at all how powerful that year was. So there's two tables of stone folded together. That's what the hand is holding. Dan's absolutely right. Now think about this. There are a lot of wonderful Christians. There will be wonderful Christians meeting tomorrow right here in Fallbrook. They love the Lord. They're living up to all the light they have, and the Lord accepts them. I'm inclined to think the great majority of God's end-time people are still out there worshiping on Sunday. Some of our Pentecostal friends will say, well, you Advents, you have good doctors and dentists, you have good hospitals, but you know, you're just legalists. Uh, you're hung up on this seventh-day Sabbath thing. The law of God. If that occurs to you, particularly with a Pentecostal, uh, sincere Pentecostal believer, ask them a question. Say, tell me something. I need some help from you. What day was it the Holy Ghost came into the early Christian church? Well, they'll look at you like you're the dumbest person on earth, and they'll say, well, the day of Pentecost. That's why we're Pentecostal, you know. We believe in the gifts of the Spirit. And you respond and say, you know, you're right. 
But what was the day of Pentecost? That they probably don't know. You know what it is? The day of Pentecost is a Hebrew feast called the Feast of Shavuot, which is still observed by pious Jews today and shouldn't be by Christians. But the Feast of Shavuot is a memorial of the giving of the law at Sinai. On that feast day, a pious Jew is supposed to go to synagogue and hear the commandments read from the Bema. Okay? That's what Pentecost was. It was a memorial of Sinai of the Ten Commandments. So if the Holy Spirit came into the Christian church on the day of Pentecost, tell me why, my Pentecostal brother or sister, would he choose to do so on the day commemorating the law if the law is no longer relevant to Christian life? Well, now the drama of the Advent continues. Soon there appears in the east a small black cloud. That's biblical. That's also from the spirit of prophecy. And I struggled with that one for a while. Jesus is the source of all light, isn't he? Why would his first appearance be a black cloud? You ever think about stuff like that and wonder why? I wondered about it until I realized something. The nearest star is something in excess of three light years from Earth. Guess how far it is across the cosmic radius from heaven to Earth. You know how fast he's moving? It's warp factor 40. He is moving far faster than the speed of light. When he first appears, he's ahead of his own light. Of course it's black. But as he nears this little earth, he slows down, and all of a sudden the sky's on fire, and there you have it. His light blooms out ahead of him. Now suddenly he's visible. The entire army of the cosmos has left heaven. Revelation says there was silence in heaven. Why? Everybody's gone. They all want to come and see the war end. Well, there's a small black cloud draws nearer the earth, becoming lighter and more glorious until it's a great white cloud. Its base a glory like consuming fire, and above it the rainbow of the covenant. Jesus rides forth as a mighty conqueror, and the armies which were in heaven are with him. Now then, it's real easy, I think, sometimes in a graduate theological seminar room to argue about whether or not the law of God really is relevant to end-time Christians, or whether we should mature beyond that and have an expanded view of grace that doesn't demand much of us. That's easy to do in an air-conditioned seminar room, but what do you do when you're looking into the face of God? Even the angels hush. They quit singing. Because in the mind of everybody there is this awful question, who shall be able to stand in the face of that? And the answer comes from the throne. My grace is enough. Now the angels modulate. They go up at least half a, a key and they sing a higher note and the process 
of rescue goes on, and now logic gets reversed. Heaven's logic is totally inverted from earth. That's why the Pharisees never got it. Nothing Jesus said made any sense to them because heaven's logic is totally inverted from selfish human thought. And here's an example of that. Uh, what's, the saddest place we have to go to on this earth is where? It's a cemetery, right? That's tough. But when Jesus comes, what will the happiest place on earth be? Right there. So now this voice calls out and it's recognized even by the dead. Even the dead people can't sleep through it. And that brings to life immortality. And now God's people, raised from the grave and raised in translation, head for home. And I see here an interesting description of that cloud as it goes back across the cosmos. The angels in that cloud cry out, holy, and wheels on it, probably just designed to make us a little bit comfortable. You know, we're used to earthly things, and we're transitioning from an earth that we're used to to a heaven we can't even comprehend. So this chariot that carries people across the cosmos seems to have wheels, and the wheels, as they turn, cry out, holy, 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 and the retinue of angels do the same in antiphonal chorus. And I want to just touch briefly on something called worship style. Now, I recognize I'm beginning to tread in a minefield, <laughs> but again, I have the advantage of I've got a vehicle out here, and I'm... <laughs> what about worship style? I hear a lot of people say, you know, we need to come get drag kicking and screaming into the 21st century and adapt to the style of worship and style of music out there in the world around us. Well, let me tell you this. My son is a voting member of the Academy of Recording Arts and Sciences. He has Grammy privileges. I've been with him to the Grammys twice. Very little of anything I heard there resembled music. I'm not sure that, you know, guys screaming rhymes into a microphone while somebody beats a drum is necessarily worshipful. Think about music for just a second. It's a triangle, isn't it? You got three elements of music, melody, harmony, and rhythm. Melody applies to the mind. That's when you sit down and you play toccata and fugue on the organ. Highly intellectual. I mean, that's like, dry, that's like flying an instrument approach into LAX through a low marine layer. Your mind is constantly at work. Okay? Harmony is emotion. That gives you a sense of where the music is going. Melody is an intellectual thing. Harmony is emotional. What's rhythm? Purely physical. And you invert music so that the emphasis falls on the second and fourth beats in a measure as opposed to the first and third. And something happens in here. You react differently. When you hear music where the first and third beats are emphasized, like a Sousa march, what you want to do is walk in a normal way straight ahead. When you hear that rhythm inverted, what happens is you want to move sideways. That's your basic dance step. All I'm saying is, think this stuff through, and I so appreciate the very reverent worship style that I have enjoyed here with you today. 
I'm not sure you can do the Lord's work with what I hear at the Grammys. At least the angels, when they fly back to heaven, say, holy, holy, holy. And there's no indication that rhythm overpowers mind. Well, now we're ready for Great Controversy 645. Before entering the city of God, the Savior bestows on his followers the emblems of victory. And the glittering... uh, Glittering ranks are drawn up in the form of a hollow square around their king, whose form rises in majesty high above saint and angel. There, throughout the unnumbered host of the redeemed, every glance is fixed on him. Now, if that's going to be how it is on the other side of the divide, on the other side of the war, after the war is won, should that not be where our eyes are fixed now? how much more we need it now than then. Every eye is fixed on him. On the heads of the overcomers, Jesus with his own right hand places the crown of glory. And that brings in one other thought here, and that is, you know, people say, well, what are wrong with the beautiful things the Lord has made, and and why should we not wear them? And, you know, it's just questions that everybody has to be persuaded in their own mind. The only observation I'd like to make here is that that crown, which is a large piece of beautiful jewelry, which Jesus himself puts on our heads, deserves to be there because he put it there, right? But one look at him, and what happens to the crown comes right back off because only he is worthy. Well, now we hear the redeemed in song. Upon the crystal sea before the throne, a sea of glass, as it were, mingled with fire, are the company that have gotten the victory. They have passed through the time of trouble such as never was. They have stood without an intercessor through the final outpouring of God's judgments. They have seen the earth wasted with famine. They themselves have endured suffering, hunger, and thirst. They love much because they have been forgiven much. And now they pour forth a song of praise. And the question is, what do they sing about? Well, guess what? They sing about a cross. Let me just put it in the words of the book I've been citing. The cross of Christ will be the science and song of the redeemed. So we go full circle. We started with him. We went through the events of a world in terminal crisis. And we end up with him. And that's where it always ought to end. Thank you. It's been a real privilege being here with you. God bless you in your worship and in your work for the people of Fallbrook and surrounding places. Don't forget the military right across the hill here. I can say Semper Fi. I think there's probably, in a human sense, no finer group of people in the world than United States Marines. And there's a work to be done for our friends in uniform across the mountain. Thanks. God bless. It's been a pleasure being here. 
Thank Louis Walton again for 